Data science can help us navigate our response to crisis situations. Anthony Scrifignano is the chief data scientist at Dun & Bradstreet. Anthony, please give us the, you know, tweet length description of Dun & Bradstreet and, and your role. I'm the chief data scientist at Dun & Bradstreet. So we collect information about businesses all over the world in different languages and different writing systems. We collect information about how they interact with each other. And we try to draw a sense of that for the context of either total risk or total opportunity. So obviously today's call will be a little bit of both. Our second esteemed guest is David Bray. He is with the Atlantic Council. David, give us the kind of like tweet length description of the Atlantic Council and your role. We exist to deal with what's called geotech, which means the geopolitics of technology. How is technology changing the world? And how do our approaches to different world and society issues change how we implement both new technologies and data? Let's first take a look at the current coronavirus, COVID-19 crisis. I know we see lots of economic pain, and obviously there's, there's health and many other aspects that are very, very difficult. But give us a thumbnail sketch of what, what are we looking, put it, looking at, put it in context. Maybe, David, do you want to jump in with that? COVID-19, it's a pandemic, meaning it's a case where there is an infectious, in this case, virus that is on multiple continents around the world. And so you have each nation right now trying to make sure they do infectious control to minimize any additional spread of uh, COVID-19. The challenge is, is we're now in the hundreds of thousands in terms of the number of cases in the world. And so where in the past, things like um, trying to actually do uh, better approaches that might be like contact tracing and things like that, while we may still try to do those things, we're now really trying to do this idea of social distancing, in some cases, uh, either self-imposed or, or nation-state-imposed isolation, to try and minimize what would be called the, the peak of the infectious curve, to try and at least avoid additional strain on hospital systems, on medical systems. And that's going to have the effect, though, of, of, of sort of widening the spread as opposed to having a sudden peak. It's going to widen, widen it, but ideally have a slower infectious rate so that the societies can get to bear with it and address it, address the hospital systems. And then, as you mentioned, there are far on effects of it. Uh, by doing social distancing, by doing, in some cases, isolation, self-imposed or otherwise, it's impacting economies, it's impacting supply chains, it's impacting geopolitics, it's impacting how we are going to get through this together. Because I have a hunch that it's probably not going to be over in a matter of weeks. We're talking more about a matter of months, if not longer. The challenge that we're facing right now is that we understand what's happening to some extent, and to some extent what's happening is unprecedented. So you heard David talk about hundreds of thousands. We don't actually know that because the testing is changing as we're trying to measure the, the impact. So unfortunately, this is a nightmare for data science because you don't have any baseline truth. You know, what we call ground truth doesn't exist. And boohoo, get over it, do something because it's affecting the world. The other assumption that we have to be very careful about is that this is affecting the whole world at the same time in the same way. Nothing could be further from the truth. So as this moves from a business perspective around the world, it will affect different parts of the supply chain. It will affect different parts of the integrated value chain of the world. As the governments of the world try to look at how they respond to this, they will be either intentionally or unintentionally impacting each other's domain and so you get these, these sort of compound effects of constant disruption. The world has never seen anything like this. And at the same time, we're trying to use information that's changing 
to understand what's happening. So that's a very, very big challenge. Describe the strategies that governments are taking to respond to this multifaceted, multi-pronged, multilateral set of issues that are happening simultaneously. As Anthony said, this is unprecedented. Uh, And so while there may have been sort of tabletop exercises in the past as to what would be done and things like that. Um, as, he, as he mentioned, uh, we think there's at least 100,000 cases, but there may even be more. Uh, and there's also the challenge of a lot of these tests. There's, we have to be concerned about what might be called like false positives as well as false negatives associated with the test. And so uh, the other challenge with COVID-19 is so when I was involved with the response to SARS with the CDC's bioterrorism program, SARS, it was thought was a period of about three days between a impossible infectious exposure and then the presentation of symptoms. And the symptoms were very severe. You knew you had it. Whereas with COVID-19, we're dealing with something that it seems like it looks like it's between anywhere between 12 and 16 days between an infectious exposure event and actual presentation of symptoms. And not everyone is gonna present severe symptoms. Um, in fact, the data shows that a, a, a sizable group of people may actually be fairly asymptomatic. Um, so it, it, it makes it harder to address this than some of the initial plans that different governments and world leaders may have had. So, so things are being adapted on the fly, which is the nature of crisis response is you are always learning, you're always getting better data and information, and that helps inform where you should focus. Um, but a lot of them it is, it's about closing down your border for right now, it's about asking people to practice social distancing, uh, try to minimize their exposure to other people to try and reduce that infectious spread rate. Uh, at the same time, we are spending a lot of effort trying to race ahead with trying to better understand the virus and see if we can get a vaccine um, and also develop better tests. Um, the challenge is, is, is it looks like, and this is of course early evidence and I wanna caveat not peer reviewed fully yet, but there's a lot of early indication in terms of articles that are being submitted to journals that there's a case of what's called genetic drift with the virus, which simply means it's mutating. And as it mutates, that means that some tests that are looking for specific fingerprints, such as polymerase chain reaction or other tests like that, that are looking for very specific fingerprints may lose their accuracy if genetic drift or mutations happen because that fingerprint's no longer there, even if it is COVID-19. So that's a challenge in terms of getting this out there. The other challenge is if you move to other types of tests like antibody tests, those are only effective when actually someone has produced the antibodies in response to COVID-19. So the world's trying to get a better sense of, as, as I'm sure Anthony can relate, what is the baseline? What is the denominator? And then trying to figure out as we move forward with this, how can we actually also start thinking about how do we rebuild economies? How do we actually work together both locally, but even more importantly, globally? Because the only way through this crisis is through it together. Anthony, as David is speaking and as government officials speak, they constantly refer back to, well, we have to see what the data tells us. And so how do we manage this conundrum? This is a dilemma that many people face in business every day. You, you have a point where you have enough information to make a decision. That doesn't mean you have enough information to make a good decision. So the best advice in this type of a situation where we are dealing with unprecedented risk is to constantly revisit what you have to believe in order to make the decision that you're making with the data that you're making that decision upon, and also to to focus on how that affects the other decisions that you're making. So for example, if uh, if you need to make a decision about the spread of the, the virus, and you know that it will be within a certain range, a certain high and a certain low, and you have no information about whether you're close to the high or the close to the low, you assume you're close to the high, 
and you make the decisions accordingly until you have data that proves otherwise, because to do otherwise would have a much more deleterious effect on the population that you're trying to protect. In business, you can't always do that. There's, everything has a cost. Everything has a what we call an opportunity cost. There's a cost to not doing something else, right? So you have to be able to use methods that are learning in the moment. We don't have historical data to learn from, so you have to learn in the moment from the actions that you're taking and the reactions to those actions and have a cyclical kind of an approach. If you notice at many states, I'm sure probably every state by now has pretty much a daily briefing where you can listen to what the, what the state government is doing. And then we have, of course, federal government responding and telling us what they're doing on a, a very frequent basis. If you notice every day, there's some reference to what was said yesterday. There's some reference to what we think is true and therefore what we're doing. That's good science. What I'm actually seeing in the public response to this right now is a pretty good, solid scientific thinking, not just let's try this, let's try that. Way too risky to do that in times like this. I just want to amplify, he hit the nail on the head, is science is always learning. Um, the nature of science. I mean, there are things that science d rediscovers. We used to think in the 1990s that neurons in your brains wouldn't regrow after a certain age. And now we discovered that's, not, that, that's actually not true. They do regrow. And so we're going to learn more and more about this virus. We're going to learn more and more about its effects. And I think good world leaders, whether they're from the private sector or the public sector, will say, I'm giving you the best that I know today, recognizing I'm going to continue to learn and I'm going to continue to adapt my response to this crisis. And one of the things I also like to tell people is the word fail is really an acronym for first attempt at iterative learning. And that's really what we're doing here is we are going to always be learning on a regular basis about COVID and this crisis response as we move forward. So I have a, a simpler way of saying the same thing, David. I say make new mistakes every day. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> we have an interesting question, a very relevant question from Twitter. Eric Sapp asks, he says, are there other case studies, examples that can help inform the best response both in policy and in press coverage for the lack of reliable data that we're discussing. He gives examples such as the, the bad testing, the mixed symptoms, reporting by open and closed nations is very different. So, so what can we do to navigate this conflicting thicket of data flying everywhere? What the literature will tell you about this from a leadership perspective is authenticity will win. So the more authentic you can be about what you actually know and what you don't know, the more responsibility you take for the mistakes that you make, the more that you are sharing information, the better off the greater good will, will experience. Unfortunately, of course, culturally, not all cultures share with all other cultures and sometimes sharing information can disclose weakness. There are complexities to this that go beyond that. But if you look at the, the best available advice in leadership in crisis, authenticity, communication, collaboration will win every time. Agreed. And, and, and to build on what uh, Anthony point put as an as a excellent point, um, up in, from 1960 up until now, open societies that are more open to deliberation and discussion and they separate their private and their public sector have been better than closed societies. Now, I think the challenge is a lot of that literature has been based on historical events before everybody had a smartphone in their hands. And, and, and we need to recognize that amid what's happening with COVID-19 in terms of the actual pandemic, we're also experiencing kind of an unprecedented, some have called infodemic, I just call it misinformation or disinformation. 
when when I was when Anthony and I were both involved in a response to 9/11, but 9/11 also when I later did the response with Anthrax and, and and even with SARS, there was misinformation. There was misinformation saying that SARS was being used by the U.S. government as some weapon or something like that, or that Anthrax was intentional, or that 9/11 was a conspiracy theory. But the challenge, you know, at that point in time, while there were conspiracy theories and misinformation, that was harder to spread because not everybody had immediately available to them a smartphone that allowed them to reshare, retweet, whatever. I think what's interesting is we've already seen over the last five years an increase in misinformation and disinformation, a lot of cases from people that just don't mean to do it. They just, their cognitive biases or their confirmation biases are kicking in. Or press outlets have to pursue for-profit strategies, and that means sometimes taking an edge that's a little bit more edgy and more selective of what's shared because they're trying to actually play to their viewership. But, and so yeah. the challenge you have here is this is all happening in the background, and I do worry for those leaders that are trying to be authentic, will they be overcome by the infodemic that's happening around them? Let me just add to that. It's not happening in a homogeneous way. We assume that when we look at a news feed that we're seeing the news. We're actually seeing news that's been curated for us based on all kinds of algorithms that try to help us. And in different parts of the world, different feeds are available. Different information is available. Sometimes it's just the availability of language. Sometimes it's more than that. There are rules about what may and may not be disseminated. Without judging that, we don't all consume the same quote-unquote truth. There's a reason why when you go to court, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Those are three different things. So we might have all true information, but not all the truth. Not all information that's true stays true over time. So when we read about things, we are constantly using our amazing human brains to try to synthesize and try to make sense out of that. When we get to this infodemic that David's talking about, those processes become overwhelmed. Now imagine you're a world leader and you're trying to do this. You're surrounded by people who are also trying to do that. They're trying to filter the information to give you what you need to know. And they're having the same problem with being overwhelmed with information. So there's very much a... a, a a constant disruption going on at times like this, where the real, the, the, the highest level of leadership that you can see from where you are is probably not hearing everything you're saying. And you're probably not saying everything you're hearing. So you got to imagine the cumulative effect of that. Arslan Khan raises a really interesting point. He says the biggest factor in data is veto, the ultimate authority to accept or reject conclusions. In time, but in times of crisis, we need to be steadfast on what the data is telling us versus what we want the data to tell us. And that seems to get right to the heart of many of the political issues that we're facing right now. So who would like to handle that important hot potato? First of all, that's an example of the confirmation bias that David's talking about. We believe something's true in any sufficiently large corpus of information. If you go in with a conclusion, you'll find something that supports what you think is true. So if you think this is an alien conspiracy and you look long enough, you'll probably find some data that supports that. That doesn't make that true. The data doesn't necessarily speak. The interpretation of the data speaks. And we bring certain bias with us when we interpret the data, different methods, different techniques have certain preconditions. For example, a lot of machine learning requires some sort of example, some sort of training, not all of it, but most of it, or a lot of it at least. We can't train right now because we don't have those examples. So we have to use the kinds of methods that draw inference from data and then move forward and then make a little bit of a correction and then draw another set of inference. Uh, some of these techniques are called Bayesian methods. They're, they're methods that are designed for moving from where you are forward without necessarily looking too far backward. There are issues with that sort of reasoning, and there are 
reasons why that's not always appropriate. There's no Swiss army knife here. The data is important. The preconditions, the critical thinking, the questions we ask, the way we challenge our bias, that's what's going to save us here. And I would amplify that one of the thorniest challenges with epidemiology is you never really truly know the denominator. Um, and that's in the case, so like we, we may have right now countries that are sort of being held up and saying, look, they have a low case mortality rate. Well, that's only if they've done an, I mean, in that case, they probably have done a large sample like South Korea. They did a randomized trial, both of people that thought they had COVID, but also people who didn't. And so they probably got the best towards the denominator as opposed to other countries that are only waiting unless you really are certain that you're presenting symptoms and then testing you. You're going to get an artificially high number only because you're not testing everybody else that may be asymptomatic for COVID-19, but are not presenting and therefore not tested. And therefore, you're getting a smaller denominator. You're testing people's ability to detect that they have the symptoms that they should go and get tested. Exactly. The wrong thing in that case. Right. And so in that case, the data would tell you the wrong thing because you haven't paused. And like you said, challenge your assumptions, challenge your biases. You just went with the data as opposed to say, maybe the data is actually missing something and I need more data. Very frequently, someone will come to me and say, can you use this data to prove dot, dot, dot? And I'll usually cut them off and say, yeah, but I'm not going to use the data to prove anything. I'll use the data to ask a question. I'll ask a question and try to answer it with that data. But by the way, before I do, I want to make sure this is the right data to address the question that we're asking. So let's get the question right, because we might not even be looking at the right data. To David's point, if we tried to collect the data about positive testing from all over the world, and we know then in some parts of the world, they're only testing people that are symptomatic. And in other parts of the world, they're trying to randomize. Why would we put that data together and form any kind of conclusion? We have another question from Twitter comment that fits right in. And this is from Michelle Bat. And Michelle makes the point that the data is changing quickly and people are referencing various versions of the truth. And so how do we clarify and communicate what is the truth? And what is the truth anyways, when it comes to all this stuff? In any crisis situation, what you believe to be true at that time, I don't know if I would ever say there's ever truth per se. And you need to caveat that and say, you're always going to be learning, you're always going to be adjusting, and you're always going to be and that's why, like I said earlier, I said this is not peer-reviewed yet. I mean, partly why we go through the process of peer review is we want actually want to have many different eyes look at it as what they believe to be true and challenge those assumptions. Because it's hard for any one person to do it, even though we should. The challenge is, is this is happening so fast. Not only is the data telling us new things that we should reconsider and reevaluate what we believe to be true, the virus itself is changing. It's it's actually, like I said, it has genetic drift, it's mutating, it's gonna have different presentations, and who knows? Hopefully it doesn't happen, but we may end up with two different strains. And then, then it's going to become even a harder problem. I raise that, though, because I think anyone looking for a definitive truth, I would just put that by the same wayside and say, what do we believe to be true at this time and why? And as Anthony said, and, and amplifying E.E. Cummings said this, too, always a more beautiful question, ask a more beautiful answer. And I love, like, behind you, you're now going down the rabbit hole because we are truly down the rabbit hole, Michael. But really... We should, you should use our questions to guide why we are thinking certain things. And that'll help us both to ask what data we need and also what predictions we have. And instead of trying to predict the future, ask the beautiful questions that'll help guide what we need to do to try and have a better sense of the future we're shaping with this crisis response. There's two different mindsets that we can approach 
there are many, but there are two that are important here that, that we can use to approach a research question. One is a positivistic mindset where the answer is out there and we're going to go find it. So that question had a positivistic tone to it. How do we know which one is true? That assumes that there is a truth out there. The other mindset is constructivist, where we actually form that truth by doing the research and understanding. If we were to study racism today and we studied it 30 years ago, what we would have learned 30 years ago isn't wrong. It's just different in the context of today. So that's an example of a constructivist kind of way of thinking. Right now, we have to be more constructivist. There probably is no ground truth that we're going to ever discover because the thing we're trying to understand is changing while we're trying to understand it. We're all asking different questions, and we all have different intent with the research that we're trying to do. So what we have to do is take a more constructivist approach. What are we learning? Exactly what David just said. What are we learning? What is it teaching us? What new questions can we ask from that and move ourselves forward like that rather than trying to go find the truth? We're not going to find the truth because that truth is changing while we're looking for it. Abhinav Agarwal asked the question, what guidance would you provide to the public at large from a data science perspective in terms of how we respond and how we manage the current crisis? Anything that you think you're learning from a data perspective First of all, see if you can triangulate, see if you can get that same information from some other non-informed source. Like you don't want to find two sources that are citing the same study. So if you find something that you think is true, try to triangulate on it. The second thing is always ask the question, what do I have to believe in order to believe this number? If you, I don't want to pick on a country. If, if the country of Samaristan, you know, publishes data on their infection rates and they say, this is the infection rate. Probably the first thing you have to believe is that the way they're measuring it measures infection rate and the way you understand infection rate. The second thing is you have to believe that that information is unperturbed, that they haven't messed with the answer. The third thing you have to believe is that it's a reasonably current number, that it's not three weeks old. Are all of those things true? Do you understand the source? There's a reason why when we read literature, there's a, a, a page that tells you who wrote it, when they wrote it. There's references cited. We actually need to look at some of these things, and they're important right now. David, Anthony just used the phrase, you have to uh, evaluate and ensure that the data is not has not been perturbed. So, David, to what extent do you think that's going on today? And can you give examples? There were signs that severe acute uh, respiratory syndrome was happening about five and a half, six months before uh, finally both Vietnam and China said uh, something was going on. Uh, and that was 2003. And so it, it's, it, you know, March was when finally Vietnam said they asked for international assistance and then China followed shortly thereafter. But, but, but as early as late 2002, there were signs um, because uh, one, there were people that were doing, trying to do the right thing, saying, look, you, you can't attribute this to me, but we're seeing something very odd here. People are getting sick. And at the time, we were calling it atypical febrile illness. Um, and then later, the other thing is that we at the Center of Disease Control, we would actually had ways of, of monitoring different things. And one was the price of garlic. And so the price of garlic was going up more than tenfold, um, which is seen as a cure-all in those areas. Unfortunately, it, it doesn't actually work, but it's, it's, it's seen as a home remedy cure-all. And so that's a sign that people were doing a massive demand on it as a sudden spike. And so um, why? Why might that country not have come forward as much as they did? I think, one, it was a sense of that to them, public health is national security. Uh, and if you look at their history, um, it's actually somewhat understandable where in their history, unfortunately, with the opium wars, they were exploited by outside foreign powers 
that, that used uh, things like as much as heroin against them, that they may not want to reveal that they have an outbreak in their own country out of concerns that other outsiders might, might take advantage of them. And so that, that's a case where it's not necessarily, you know, as, 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 as you're mentioning, perturbing, there is sensitivity to sometimes revealing how bad it is because of the geopolitical impacts that it might mean both for your internal domestic stability, um, but also externally as well. Uh, and unfortunately, it is happening. I mean, we need to be realistic here that while we're dealing with the pandemic that is COVID-19, uh, there are some countries that see this as a case where the world is distracted focusing on this, and they may be able to do some some strategic power grabs here and there or do things that normally would invoke world response and outrage because we're all focused on this, that these other things are happening. And so this is the nature of human societies. They're messy, they're complex, and uh but as, as Anthony mentioned, as much as possible, if you're in business, if you're in the private sector, if you're in the public sector, strive to be that one that speaks the truth, even if that means you're going to get a lot of arrows and, and mud thrown your way, um, because at the end of the day, you've got to be true to yourself and authentic to yourself, even if at the time, uh, people don't acknowledge that or, or don't want to hear what you're saying. It's very easy to say the supply chains of the world are disrupted right now. It's very easy to say businesses have closed their doors. But- that's the short-term effect that we understand. What is the longer-term effect of that? Some of the businesses, hopefully most of them, will open their doors. What kinds of clues what might we see in the data that suggests that? When we think about shifting supply chains, when we think about one product, respirators are the easy one to think about right now. How many manufacturing operations are trying to shift their focus to something respiratory? What will be the impact of that? This isn't necessarily all negative from a business perspective. And for the world to, to come out of this and thrive, the economy of the world has to come out of this and thrive. So it's not a dirty thing to think about business in the context of something horrible like this, because that's the fuel that will help us produce the prosperity that we need to thrive and survive and emerge from this. So it's really important to look beyond uh, what happened yesterday and what's happening immediately tomorrow. Of course, you need to do that. But you need to also have a little part of your focus on presuming we emerge when we do, how will we know it's happening? What will we be doing in that? How will we change our posture? How will we shift our focus? You've got to be doing both if you're a leader. You don't have the luxury of doing one and then the other because the second one has a much longer runway than the first one. The strength of the United States is in times of crisis, whether it's war or warlike events. And I would actually say we are at war with COVID-19. Um, unfortunately, Mother Nature sometimes is, is out to get us. And so we as humans need to actually address what the virus is doing. At, at our strength in the United States, but also parts of Europe, North America, is we our private sectors will mobilize when they actually have the opportunity to help with that crisis. Mm -hmm. And so it is about the immediate, but it's also about the recovery. And I think in some respects, trends that were regarding distributed manufacturing, the future of work, network-centric ways of working together, they were already there before COVID-19. What COVID-19 has done is it's actually sort of accelerated them. So if, if you are a business leader, you should actually say, like, for example, Home Depot now is actually having a service where you can actually order in advance what you want to pick up, and it's ready for you to pick up, and then you off you go, as opposed to trying to spend 30 or 45 minutes gathering it from across the store. I hope that's something they continue post-COVID-19, because that's a value added for their customers. Arsalan Khan asks a question that, uh, thank you, Arsalan, for asking this, that I also want to know, which is this. When's this going to be over? Define over. Over means I can go outside 
without making the assumption that literally every single surface may be coated with or contaminated with an unseen and invisible poison that if I touch can make me potentially deathly ill. And when I come inside, I must sanitize everything for, in order to keep that unseen poison outside. That's over. For this particular challenge, and your definition of over as a scientist, I would say when there's an effective medical treatment to give you some immunity to that thing that you're afraid of. Unfortunately, that's a very simplified answer because there'll be the next thing and the next thing. So what I would say is that there's an element of system learning here. The world, it's a horrible lesson and it's horrible the way we have to learn it. But the world is, is learning hopefully something right now about how to retreat and protect itself in a way that has never been conceived of before. I saw a, a fantastic meme the other day with the, the satellites around the earth looking down on the earth and there was a big, you know, sorry, we're closed sign on the earth, right? This hasn't happened at this scale, but the fact that it can happen at all, the fact that the earth can cooperate even partially to this level is pretty amazing to me. The fact that there's somehow a button that we can press that says, everybody go home, shut down the supply chains, turn off the airlines. Turn. I didn't know we had that button. So it's pretty amazing that we've learned to collaborate this way. We're having this conversation remotely. We're all in our you know, sheltered in place locations using a platform that was designed for lots of things. It certainly wasn't designed for the majority of the population to try to use it at the same time. Somehow magically that's working. Thank you, whoever you are behind the scenes, right? I can't believe they're doing the same thing today as they were doing three weeks ago, because there's no way they would have anticipated this kind of demand. And yet here we are. Two things is first, Mother Nature is always out to get us uh, and they will always, Mother Nature will always continue out to get us. And so those who claim we could never have foreseen this, we didn't know this was coming. The reality is there were actually a small group of people, including those of us with the Bioterrorism Preparedness Response Program that thought it's a low probability, high consequence event. At some point in time, a natural pandemic will happen. But the challenge is, is trying to get world leaders to commit funds to have additional capacity, additional laboratory tests, additional ventilators. Uh, until it happens, it looks like it's a waste of government resources. And then it's like, well, why haven't you done enough in advance? When will this be over? Um, as Anthony alluded to, ideally, it's when we have a vaccine that is readily available to everybody. But the challenge is, is as, you, as you and I all know, is influenza is example of one of those viruses that changes every year. And so every year, data scientists working with epidemiologists and public health practitioners guess about five to eight months in advance what are going to be the dominant strains that are going to be present on the planet. And they usually mix about three of them together. They, they do the highest probability ones. And sometimes Mother Nature rolls the dice and she does one of the low probability ones and that vaccine's no longer effective. The question with COVID-19 that has not been answered yet is, will a single vaccine take care of it? And will we be able to get it out to the entire planet fast enough? Because we're talking about the entire planet's going to need to get this. Um, the last time we did that was with smallpox, and I think that was 1977. Um, so we're going to have to figure out how we address that. Or do we discover COVID-19, much like influenza every year, is going to need a new vaccine every year as a way to address it? So we don't have enough data yet. But as Anthony mentioned, the world has changed and is going to continue to change. And so this will probably be marked as both the before COVID-19 era and the post COVID-19 era. I didn't hear any dates tossed about on when we're... It's going to be maybe months. It may even be years. You know, M Michael, not to be flippant, when the, when the Mayan calendar was supposedly predicting that the world would end in 2012, I was on a, a, a live event that was being broadcast and the commentator at the end 
sort of flippantly asked me what I thought of it. Was I aware of the Mayan, supposed Mayan prediction and what I thought of it? And I immediately said, the Mayans are wrong. And she said, well, how can you be so sure? And I said, because if I'm wrong, nobody's going to know, right? Like it, there, Anybody that tells you that they can predict with any degree of certainty when this will be over or in what way this will be over, either they have a really fancy crystal ball or they have a poor understanding of the question or they're making stuff up. None of those is a good outcome really right now. Kingsley Uye Itahan makes the comment that open data as a, is essential and can be very valuable in this kind of situation. And so can you talk about open data and open data sources? There's what we want open data to be, and there's the reality of open data. So certain types of open data, especially historical data, here are things that happened in the past here are like, demographics, census information, things like that. Great, fantastic idea to say that we're going to take dynamic data, data in motion, and somehow make it freely and instantly available to everyone is, is a very scary idea for a lot of reasons. Very often data has to be cleaned. Very often data is wrong. It costs money to produce the data. So some data open, yes. Uh, in healthcare, for example, we have laws about privacy. We have HIPAA. We have all different types of laws around the world. You can't just suddenly suspend all those. I don't want my medical data necessarily released. If you anonymize it, there are costs that come with that. There are also risks that come with that. So yeah, uh, certain types of information, particularly data about things that have happened in the past, or what we call data at rest, good idea. Data in motion, data that's very expensive to create or curate, maybe not so much. Yes, I get the ideal of open data, and I do think, like you said, data that's not in motion, that makes sense. Data that's going to be either really expensive to sanitize and clean, and then by the time you clean, it's out of date anyway, because new data has come in, or data that does require expertise, as we gave the example earlier of it might be that the data is showing something, but you don't know the denominator. And if you're not an expert in this field, you may reach the wrong conclusions because you don't notice pause and say, well, maybe we're not testing enough, or this is mixing something that has randomized tests next to people that are only getting tested if they think they have the, the virus. So, so yes, I get the ideal for open data, all for it. There's also a place for data that's kept private for health reasons or for comp confidentiality of companies and their IP. Um, and so I think it's, 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 it's a multi-sided answer. It's not a single, single type of data will solve everything. A really good analogy is a pharmacy. Y you should be able to go into the pharmacy and buy certain things without any kind of help. You know, if I want to go in and buy bandages or I want to go, go in and buy over-the-counter drugs or I want to go in and buy something, batteries, you know, yeah, you could kill yourself with a battery, but y you're pretty safe. And, and we pretty much understand what those things are when we consume them and they're reasonably unchanged. They come with directions. Then there's the other things that are in the pharmacy that are behind the counter that require a prescription that in some cases are controlled by regulation. There's a reason for that. You need someone to help you consume those drugs or those products in a way that's not going to be injurious to you. Data is the same way. Some of it, you can just take it and use it any way you want. Some of it, maybe you need a little bit of explanation. Maybe you need a little bit of help. Maybe it doesn't mean what you think it means and you're likely to draw conclusions from it that are going to be antithetical to what you're trying to do, or in some cases, even really dangerous. If you cannot tell me how long this is going to last, this situation, however you define it, then frankly, what is the value of your millions of dollars worth of data and data science? Why are we here? Because I can take guesses also, by the way. 
I'm not guessing. I'm, I'm making informed decisions based on a known epistemology, based on empirical methods, which means if other researchers did the same thing in the same way with the same data, they'd reach the same conclusions. We call this science for a reason. So we may not know the answer to the question that we want to ask, when will it be over? We might be able to ask a question that we can answer. How will we know when the recovery phase starts? That that sub, so-called second derivative shift, we should be able to see that in certain types of live data. How will we know when our interventions are having the impact that we intend? By looking at the data, by measuring it. So the data science will help us ask really important questions and then using the techniques that are empirical, that are reproducible, answer those questions. It may not answer every question we want. It, getting what you want all the time is for babies. Anthony, what advice do you have for business leaders for nav for using data to navigate this kind of crisis? Three things. Number one, communicate. Be authentic. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Number two, collaborate. Do not try to do this alone. Do not try to do this in a vacuum. There's no way you know everything you need to know, and there's no way the next guy knows everything they need to know. We must collaborate. And the third thing is, please think beyond the immediate crisis. Have some portion of your mind share about what your strategy, what your strategy is going to be as we emerge from this so that we don't fall out of this. We run out of this. David, what advice do you have for policymakers as we navigate this incredibly complex situation? Be aware there is a absence of trust of whether they're government institutions, whether it's the media. And this has been something that was in the making before COVID-19, as mentioned. I mean, we're in a period of uh, the last five years, misinformation, disinformation seems to be increasing for multiple reasons. And at the end of the day, we, we run the risk that we'll discover our own human brains were not ready for what the internet enabled us to do. Now, at the same time, I can't imagine trying to get through COVID-19 without the internet. Imagine if this was 1960s and we were all relying on ham radios as a way of trying to communicate and coordinate. This would be very difficult. So, so recognize communication, but recognize the challenges associated with the infodemic and do your part to ideally try to tamp down that fire as opposed to adding to it. Uh, second, on the collaboration, definitely agree. The only way through this crisis is through it together. We need to start thinking about not only what we do to empower, in, at least in the United States, local and state health departments, because that's where the action is. We need to empower frontline first responders. We need to address the fact that there's probably going to start being burnout amongst medical doctors, nurse practitioners, nurses that have to like deal with this on a daily basis, yet go home to their own families. Um, and so whatever we can do to make sure we get ahead of the curve to address the burnout, and start also thinking, though, collaboratively globally, because the world has changed. The world order will not look the same when we emerge out of this. And we already, one of the things we're trying to do with the Atlantic Council, and we're, we're working with others, is try to get a sense of where are going to be those disruptions with the recovery involving food, involving other sort of essentials for people. And we're going to find that some countries are going to need assistance. And, and, and it will be done to us if we don't think globally while also addressing our own national needs. And then lastly, as Anthony talked about, being aware of the fact that we've got to think long-term. Um, when I was with the CDC, and I've done this with other efforts as well in Afghanistan, we always had what we call the beta team. Alpha teams, the first responders, they're locked into the immediate, they're meeting the immediate needs. The beta team, however, is the group that sort of thinks and says, what else are we missing? What else do we need to do so that that alpha team, when they get to stage two or stage three, has things actually in a better state? 
So they're able to take the more balcony view of everything that's happening on. And that's partly what we're trying to do with the Atlantic Council Geotech Center. I know Anthony's doing it at Dun & Bradstreet as well. We need more people that are coming together as a networked beta team that is trying to think about the long term because yes, we need to address the short term, but we've got to get ahead of the long term as well else we will find that we're going to not have as good as a future as we could moving through this. All right. A fascinating and important discussion with two brilliant minds. Anthony Scrifignano is the chief data scientist at Dun & Bradstreet. And David Bray is the director of the Geotech Center at the Atlantic Council. David and Anthony, thank you very, very much for taking time and to our audience, and especially to the people who ask questions. Thank you so much for joining. Before you go, please subscribe on YouTube and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website, and we'll send you excellent information about CXO Talk. Have a great day, everybody. Watch CXOTalk.com. We have more great shows coming up. And also, I've been doing LinkedIn Lives. So if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll see all kinds of other additional, really interesting conversations. Take care, everybody. Have a good day and stay safe.